Well, hello, and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. That's Mike on the <laughs> other side. I just jumped on you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> We're here at episode 122, a special guitar-featured episode. I think we're going to call it something like uh, Guitarosaurus or something. Guitarosaurus yeah. is a good name. I'm going to go for that one. We've had Summer Strumming, Fretboard, Free For All, um, mm. running out of parts of the guitar to uh, name it after. <laughs> after last week's uh, trans title that didn't go over... <laughs> well, that's what well, that we was what I wanted about. to yeah. say. Like, I wanted, I want to say something to the listeners. We called it a trans musical experience because that's I was right. thinking. I was talking to these uh, guys I was out with last night. Uh, we 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 <laughs> we wanted that name because we figured the algorithm would send us far and wide to all these other people. We'd get all these new listeners, but actually, the opposite happened. Yeah. Nobody listened to us last week. <laughs> anyway, won't be doing that experiment again. Anyway. Well, to be fair, our largest uh, listening audience is in the U.S., and it was Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, there is and, that. Uh, okay. There's that too. Anyway. They were probably listening to all that Gershwin and um, the, <laughs> yeah, the other the other American music. music that we've uh, talked about in the past. Right. You know. Anyway, and, yeah, we tried. And of course, jazz, which is the American art form. <laughs> yeah. 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 All those jazz listeners in the U.S. Right. Anyway, that's what we focus on here: classical. And jazz music, that's what we consider adult music. Sometimes we branch out into other categories as well, but we'll bring you six new recordings every week mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, go into depth track by track and try to uh, have a wide range of artists uh, from different backgrounds, different countries, uh, music <laughs> from all time periods. We try to uh, go through uh, everything we can. We're well over 700 recordings now into our third year here. Yeah, heading towards 1,000. Oh, man. Yeah, aiming towards 1,000. So yeah. uh, anyway, all the music that we're going to talk about, as always, you can find links to in the episode description. There's Spotify there, Apple Music, and at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. Again, all the music in one place on Deezer. That's a CD quality streaming platform from France that uh, well, we used to say it's our favorite, but recently uh, it's been hard to find everything in classical on there in complete form. Oh God, I've been having so much trouble with this. Yeah, this. In fact, last week because I'm doing, you know, look, I'm searching through uh, for like um, we're doing piano next week, so right. I was looking for some good piano recordings there, and I found a few I wanted to talk about, but I uh, couldn't get all the tracks. I don't know what's going on with Deezer there. There. Uh, classical uh, music um, files aren't really um, are all yeah. messed up somehow. I don't know what's going on there. I hope they fix it. I've, I've tried to figure it out. To them, but you know, if it's something in the automated process or something in between the distributor mm -hmm. and the platform, I mean, uh, hopefully they get it worked out because mm -hmm. uh, we rely on them, and that's a bit disappointing when uh, things. Well, what was the uh, What's that one wind song or something that you told oh, me about? Oh, wind bells. Yeah, wind that's bells. um. This is an Icelandic. I should get his name. Uh, Gudmundsson. Um, Haki Gudmundsson. Yeah. He, um, I was checking that out this week because um, Gramophone had named it as one of their best um, right. classical albums of the year so far, and it's, the album's called Wind Bells. He's a contemporary composer. I thought I'd check that out. Incidentally, the um the physical copy doesn't even come on a CD or SACD. It comes only on Blu-ray audio. Ooh, so you need a Blu-ray player audience to be able to hear in. that. And they're going for the it's the Sono Luminous label, and they're going for um you know the highest possible quality right. sound, which is cool to have like a recording because I imagine it was recorded in that sort of um right. super high resolution. 
Anyway, but they do have uh, digital files of it, except not on Deezer. They only had about four tracks. Not only that, they were, only one of the pieces was complete. They're, the other ones were all missing movements. Yeah. It was just horrible. And the stupid thing was, when you told me that, I don't know, I had, I had a uh, bug mm-hmm. in an orifice, as they say, and I said, I'm going to take a look. And I found all the tracks. Yeah. And they were all there on Deezer, but yeah. they weren't unified, and they didn't come up on any... Uh, search for the album so i had to do all these weird searches and i made a playlist for you after finding all of them right. but uh, apparently something's going wrong in the organization yeah another issue i have with uh streaming is that they're very track oriented and classical music is not a track no. type of music it's it's multi-movements right and they all kind of balance each other out so you really want to hear uh, yeah. all of the movements just streaming just isn't set up for that it's all tracks and i really hate that because we're back to like singles in the 50s and 60s and yeah. things like that you know i'm i'm we were born in the album era where the album was this, right. like this complete artwork and i still think of it like that mm. you know anyway hopefully that gets worked out and enough of a rant about that type mm. of thing but anyway wherever you listen to us because we're on all the platforms and small apps and everything and, and the links to all of these things and uh, all the description should be easily available and uh, easy to follow up on the streaming. But if for any reason it doesn't work in the description wherever you're listening to us, you can always come over to our host site, which is podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's very easy to follow and clear there for this and all previous episodes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend, any music-loving friends, take a moment, give us a little ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations and we get more listeners that way as well. And you can also come over and follow us on our Facebook page. You can get extra info during the week. I put up new releases about jazz every day as I find them, as I search with my mm. early morning coffee, there's a bunch of new stuff since last week there as well. You can also see our interaction with the artists and other comments there. And you can leave a message or comment as well. And if you want to contact us directly with any other comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I'd also like to uh, give a nice mention to our friends over at the same difference to jazz fans one jazz standard podcast now we focus exclusively on new releases within the last three months classical and jazz and in jazz inevitably we'll have some standards pop up in the recordings i like to get a, as much a mix as possible of new you know, new compositions and music but there will always be some standards in there but they focus on one standard every episode that comes out every two weeks that's johnny valenzuela and tony habra and they play little snippets of each one and talk about the differences and the versions and what they like and what they don't like and well since the cat's out of the bag now we're going to uh, have a little bit of collaboration yeah, uh, with these guys. And um, well, they they announced it in their most recent episode. But yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently, um, you know, we uh, in our description say that uh, we're broadcasting from our mountain lair in Japan. Yeah. And, you know, they're not so sure that we're actually in Japan. They think we might just not want to be from Idaho or something like that. Yeah. Well, what do you got to say about that, Russ? Anything? Yeah, there you go. Take that. <laughs> Same difference podcast. <laughs> it could be. Wouldn't know. it be like she she got the gun eye? She got the gun eye. She got the gun eye. Could say a lot of different things. Yeah. You could say a lot of different things. Yeah. We're not in Japan. 
You know what? You know what's cool about that is now all, all of a sudden all our Japanese listeners ears like popped. You know, I hope we don't get any because we have a lot of them too. They get any requests to do a whole episode in Japanese? I could probably do it, but I couldn't do that. <laughs> it's yeah. not that we have anything against Idaho or anything, but yeah, uh, we love Idaho. Do we have listeners in Idaho? I don't think so. I've kind of checked, but it might have been someone's <laughs> at one point. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think the lowest number of downloads was from uh, North Dakota. Uh, you know, you know what the note lumps because I look at this every month. Oh, do you? Um, we never get downloads from Hawaii, and oh. I really want us to have people in Hawaii listening to us. Oh. <laughs> you know, so we'll like have to maybe work on that. maybe we could move there one day and like you know have like a fan base. You know, be able to make a living and live there. Well, we'll have to think of a Hawaiian themed episode sometime. Oh God, I don't know how what what I would do for that, <laughs> but we have to see. We'll see. Anyway, uh, we're going mm-hmm. to start out. I believe having uh, same difference guys uh, guest on our show. Right. Well, I'll be uh, throwing some jazz standards and, and maybe something a little bit uh, non-standard too. But we'll try to keep within their uh, comfort zone and uh, working. And you're going to try to give them some classical to. Uh, well, talk oh, here's about some classical. I'm only going to do one classical album for that because okay. I don't know. I don't want to like <laughs> suddenly yeah. have them. Like, <laughs> you're listening to three classical albums. I'm only going to give them one. So. I don't know. I haven't decided which one it is. I have an idea, but I want to see if anything else comes out. We've know? got that planned uh, to do something in August together. So that should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so stay tuned for more details on that. And if you haven't checked them out, go over and check out their podcast, Build Up Your Jazz Standard Knowledge, because uh, that will help you even approach new recordings and uh, you know give some historical background. Yeah, they're very funny. That's a, It's a good yeah. podcast. I like listening to it. Yeah. I, well, they're less geeky than we are. You know, we start yeah. off at the beginning with a lot of interaction like that. And then we kind of go into the uh, deep geek yeah. zone as we get into our each recordings and then yeah, uh, I do get I do get complaints about that from people who want to listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. They, they get lost. I think about that a lot cuz I want to do some uh, music samples. Mm. Uh, one of the things about classical music though is a lot of times when there's a big effect made, it was set up maybe at the beginning of the piece maybe as many as 10 minutes ago and sure. you can't really illustrate that. You don't have to hear the whole piece, but yeah. you know. You need someone guiding you through it for that. But there are nice moments that you can put up, I guess. But I feel the same way in jazz too, you know, at least in the ideal setting, you know, when you come to a jazz solo, it should be coming after, you know, the structure and the melody of the song. You should be building on that as well. And if I just say, oh, you know, these licks are great and I pull something out of context. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's not really the same experience as just listening to a little snippet of it. So we just hope that people either listen to what we were talking about that week, either before or after we talk about it. Last year, our solo of the year was the Michael Deese trombone solo on his album. And the reason why that was so great is because it followed the uh, uh, Rudrash Mahanthapa solo, yeah. <laughs> it, which was like, like high speed. You know? yeah. And then he came in with the trombone and did this amazing kind of you know continuation of that you know, on a much heavier sounding yeah. instrument and we were just blown away by that but if you played it by itself you wouldn't really get it if i had to follow that with my trumpet the only sound you would have heard would be the case latches closing <laughs> in the door going behind me but michael deese just uh stepped up with the trombone and yeah burned it up there that was great <laughs> amazing all right so it looks like everybody's uh yeah i don't have any um no oh, deaths do we have any uh, deaths? Oh, we do. I didn't do any research on this though, but uh, uh, I don't know how to say his name either. Geno Yando, Geno Yando. Mm. He was a a pianist, and he died. And he's um he was on the Naxos label, and I really liked his playing because he recorded at the time. 
um, that Stephen Huff released his first um, recording of the Mumpo Piano mm. Works, and I was that was a way for me to um, turn a lot of people onto classical music because Mumpo did uh, mostly miniatures, and people right. love them; they're really exquisite pieces. And then Geno uh, Jando, or I don't know how to say the J's, but uh, he he was Hungarian, I think, and um, yes. mm. he recorded all five. No, he recorded five albums of all of the Mompo solo piano works, and that's how wow. I really got to know them. And I have a few other recordings of him doing uh, Deodat de Seferac, the uh, French composer. There's all these composers I didn't really know much about, hmm. and uh, he really uh, filled in my uh, knowledge base there. So farewell, Geno Jando. I really lo loved his recordings. I still have them, and I still listen to them. Check out his Mompo. All right. I guess that's not going to get the uh, Dies Irae's theme. Because I <laughs> didn't, not, I would have yeah. done it, but I didn't really do a formal right. kind of look All at right. this because it came up so fast. So right. I didn't know what to say. So anyway, anyone wants to complain about that, feel free. I'll apologize. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he really does deserve more. All right. So tonight, get out your tuners and uh, twist those tuning pegs for uh, all guitar-based music here. And um, yeah, well, the classical uh, surprised me this week too. So yeah, me too. something to say here. Yeah, the, especially in this first album, which was my um, my favorite record of the mm. week. I, well, my favorite classical record of the week. I am, maybe my favorite record of the week. I don't know. Mm. I got to, because I liked one of the jazz ones a lot too. Anyway, we're talking about um, one of my favorite composers to listen to, Domenico Scarlatti, Baroque, uh, Italian Baroque composer who spent most of his working life in Spain, sort of uh, teaching and uh, writing keyboard works for the uh, the daughters of the uh, <laughs> of the <laughs> people in the court in Spain. Not a bad life, I have to say, right? Yeah. But he wrote over 500, I think there are 555 sonatas. They're all single movement works, and they're all about you know, anywhere from three to five minutes long. So averaging four minutes about. Anyway, this is an album of Scarlatti Sonatas by the Eden Stell guitar duo. They consist of Mark Eden and Christopher Stell, and they're both British, I think. And uh, they called themselves Eden Stell. Kind of sounds like a beer I'd like to drink, but uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, I would drink a beer called Eden Stell. And I would listen to an album by the Eden Stell guitar duo. This was really fantastic. It's on the. Yeah, this was cool. It's on the Duzel label from France. Okay, so first of all, just to start this, in the booklet, uh, Mark Eden remarks in a printed interview that there's not much from the harpsichord repertoire that doesn't work on the guitar. It's good to know. And uh, this album is sort of proof of that. If you're listening, uh, Christopher Stell is in the left channel, playing mostly accompaniment, although they do change, at least for one track mm. and bass lines. And Mark Eden is in the right channel. So it's, that's nice to know. Yeah. You know who's who. I think what they said is what he said is correct mm -hmm. about that. But having two guitarists, yeah, is uh, the key. I think to what makes this uh, really, really interesting. Yeah, there may be some of these pieces may be possible to play on one guitar, but there are some really cool things that two guitars can yeah. do that we're going to hear several times in this album. And one of them is when you get a run from the bass all the way up into the the high end. Mm it kind of moves across the channels because it starts right. in one guitar and then seamlessly goes into the other. It's an amazing effect when it happens. You know, you got to be really on top of it. I'll point it out because I think there are two that I caught, but there, there are probably more too. There are 10 tracks. So it's not, this is almost like a, almost like a pop album format, really. It's just a 10, one movement tracks are, you know, they're sort of short pieces and all of um, Scarlatti's um, sonatas are called Sonata in, you know, the first one in here is D minor. 
And then they have these uh, K listings. The K is for Kirkpatrick. Now, there have been a few. The thing is, music scholarship has really gone through the roof recently, so everybody wants to have his or her, you know, personal sort of, um, <laughs> you know, catalog listing. Right. And sometimes, like, different um, albums will use different, you know, catalog listings mm-hmm. and it just drives me crazy because I don't really know what the piece is. You know? <laughs> if it's like something else. Uh, the first person to uh, catalog Scarlatti's work was uh, Alessandro Longo. So you would get the L listing, but uh, that's, they don't use that anymore. So uh, we don't see those anymore. If you have an old recording of Scarlatti, you might see that. They have K for Kirkpatrick's. On some of them, it used to be K and then a small K to, so that we didn't confuse it with the Kershaw listings of Mozart. And there are other ones now too, but um, this album relies on the Kirkpatrick listing. Yeah, I love music. I love uh, you know the whole architecture of classical music. What I don't love is how the the boring titles <laughs> these works have. You know, you can't really. It's hard to get people excited about this music if you're going to say, "Oh, it's a sonata five hundred and twelve in <laughs> in D minor." It doesn't really. Uh, it's not very evocative. I think Debussy kind of started to solve this problem in. Uh, yeah in the 20th century by actually giving his works actual names. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about these. The first one, K. I'm just going to call it K instead of saying Kirkpatrick, just because that's what you're reading on the disc. Um, Sonata in D minor K 141 starts this off. And boy, what a great uh, beginning this is. It's really a toccata, mm. and it's a very high energy. And all of these are arranged by, um, most of these are arranged by Mark Eden, but not all of them. Uh, this particular one is arranged by Sergio Abru, who the um, album is um, dedicated to, he recently died. Um, he was a great Brazilian guitarist, classical guitarist, I guess. He died this year in 2023, just recently. Oh. So the the album is dedicated to him. And we start out with one of his arrangements, and boy, what an arrangement it is, and what a performance it is. It's a familiar piece. If you've heard like a lot of um, piano um, or harpsichord, um, you know, renditions of these works. Because this is a guitar recording, the Spanish there's a Spanish character in this that really comes across. Because you know Scarlatti, he was an Italian composer, but he spent his life in Spain. I'm sure he mm. picked up a lot of those um, styles. Okay, there's a rapid, repeated note on the harpsichord or piano, and that's reflecting a guitar technique. But in, which we're actually hearing now on the guitar, yeah. which is fantastic. You know, so it's it's what he's trying to imitate on the keyboard work. I said here, one of the advantages of having two guitars is that the lower voices are all highly melodically shaped in Scarlatti's music, and they stand out with the upper voice. So one's in each channel. The uh, lower voice can really focus on the melodic material, whereas if you're a keyboard player, you know, you're doing different things with both hands, and it, it doesn't always come across as, well, I guess a great pianist. They're always going to come across great, but um, you can kind of hear the... Um, the different melodies happening at the same time, and it really just comes across well. This is remarkable playing and sound in this um, piece. There's a big sweep at the end that starts in one guitar and is in the other. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. Handed off seamlessly. This is just a great track to um, yeah. sample. It's th- this will get you right in. You'll, you, I think when you listen, hear this track, it's the first track. You'll just want to hear the rest of the album, and you'll keep going. It's really fantastic. If you love guitar playing, you really need to hear this. It's really good. Oh, especially in headphones. If you're wearing headphones, <laughs> you listen to this, that you know, that yeah. guitar run is just fantastic. And I don't think you could achieve this speed of those repeated notes on a harpsichord. I was trying to imagine that. and uh, Yeah, because the, the, it's a guitar technique. So you just you kinda, can use the two fingers you know, on one string. Well, I mean, you can kind of do that on harpsichord, but I don't... But you got to wait for the action to release. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a yeah. hard thing. You have to have a really 
good harpsichord. You can do it on the piano, sort of, but it's a different feel. Mm. Anyway, the uh, second track, uh, Sonata K115 in C minor. This one's arranged by Mark Eden, and all of the works are going to be arranged by Mark Eden, unless I say otherwise, because he did most of them. So this one's uh, upbeat as well. They're really kind of keeping us, uh, our toes tapping here with these... um, the pieces that they're choosing, uh, despite the minor key, uh, it's it it does go into more sober melodies in the um, in bits of the uh, mm. opening melody. It's kind of like a middle eight sort of melody, if you could call it that, in the theme. At the forty second mark, I like the sudden switch to the quieter tone on both guitars. So this album doesn't get boring. Um, the two guitars change their sound often enough yeah. that it just keeps the ear engaged. So I really enjoyed the uh, change in sound there, and I know that we're going to get more of this as we go, and we do. Uh, The opening section repeats at three minutes in the B section of this A-B structured composition. In the Baroque era, if if you've ever played like Bach sort of suites on the piano, you know that they're all sort of A-B. There's an A section, it repeats, and then there's a B section, it repeats, and that's just how it goes. And um, Scarlatti sonatas are like that too most of the time. The B section begins with these really wonderful hushed tones, and the melodic characterization throughout is on point. The rhythm is always full of life, even in quieter sections. They never really let that go. No slackening of the rhythm here. Track three, K116 in C minor, Sonata. Lively rhythm again, and I love the way the duo instills these works with Mediterranean sunshine via the springing rhythms. That's an Italian thing as much as a Spanish thing. There's very much a guitar timbre throughout, but at times you can imagine the upper voice being a harpsichord. As Mark Eden in the right channel keeps a straight tone that mimics the instrument at times, often when he's not using this kind of vibrato that we'll often hear on this album. Uh, another nice thing you can do on the on the uh, guitar that you can't do on the harpsichord. You're just getting a solid tone on a mm. keyboard instrument. In all three of these opening pieces, the guitarist at the upper end, that's uh, Mark Eden, shows... Um, Remarkably even technique when he has a constant stream of 16th notes. Ensemble volume is remarkably level, too. It's really amazing. Track 4, K466 in F minor. This one's arranged by Sergio Assad, a Brazilian guitarist. You know him, right? This is a slow sonata here. Uh, Very melodic and chimey at the beginning. Uh, The guitar timbre is apparent, but the harpsichord profile is discernible in the technique here. There's slight vibrato on the melodic notes, sometimes mm-hmm. something a harpsichord can't do, of course. Uh, the section plays out and repeats starting at 155. At 344, the middle section begins, sounding very Spanish in profile in this guitar recording. It sort of makes me want to hear a piano or harpsichord rendition to compare it with. Mm-hmm. At uh, 556, this section repeats, melodic lines are very sensitively taken and have a Spanish tinge. I think in here too that he's got little pull-offs, you know, a guitar yeah, technique, yeah. The and uh, pull-off, yeah. that kind of stood out as well. Yeah, yeah, that's another thing. It's it's a very it's a technique that's particular to the right. guitar because there's no attack on it, but it's well there is, but it's kind of not mm. a f- finger attack. It's really hard to explain. Okay, track five, K four seventy four in E flat major, um, back to a Mark Eden arrangement, by the way. It's a slow tempo work again, and it starts with plucked chords in the left channel and a gentle melody in the right, all sensitively played with a light vibrato on the attack. This all leads to a gentle cadence at around the two-minute mark. Really beautifully taken. I really just kind of feel like tension just leave my Mm. body when I hear those um, cadences on this album. 
Then the uh, sections hurt again. At 240, there's a nice arpeggio starting in the right channel and ending in the left. This went the other way. <laughs> goes downward this time. Uh, it's handed off between the two guitarists. Excellent playing. At 320, the B section starts. We hear a handed off arpeggiated figure at around 420. Always intriguing. And again, especially if you're listening in headphones, it's almost like listening to Pink Floyd, <laughs> you know, Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon with all those bells going off in both ears and things like that. You get a little bit of a taste of that here. Track six, K475 and E flat major, uh, has a more dancing quality to it with, with its repeated chords in the right hand and rising figures with appoggiaturas, which puts one in mind of the harpsichord and of the Baroque period in general. Uh, this piece has a strong harpsichord tone to a lot of it until the cadential material at around uh, 115. Uh, the B section features some intricate handoffs between the right and left channel guitars, and the lively rhythm is kept springy throughout. I love that Italian spring, you know, that, mm. to the rhythm. It's just kind of just jumps out of the instrument. Just kind of, it just feels lively, mm. like uh, like winter's over, sort of. You know, right. All right, track seven, K87 in B minor. Uh, the sound on this has a light vibrato, but the figuration makes it border between a harpsichord and guitar timbre. It's mostly harmonized melodic figures. There are some clever delays of the final cadence of sections, and you can hear a, a string of them from the three-minute mark on. It's pretty cool. Like, they'll keep going towards a cadence, but then there'll be some substitute chord that comes in. It's, it's, it's a teasing thing, and people at the time, would have noticed this because they sort of had, this was their language, their musical language mm. was cadences. You know, so they would be waiting for that resting point. And when it never came, it was kind of some, right. there's a, it's a bit, it, they, it counted as humor in music at the time. It would have made people delighted, I suppose, at the court. Anyway, track eight, K545 in B flat major has a, it's a quick bustling figure heard in both guitars at the opening of this sonata, the left channel guitar. That's, um, Jonathan Stell, uh, remains a bit faint as the right channel carries the melodic material here. Uh, they reach the cadence at equal volume at around the uh, one minute mark, and the piece stays at this tempo throughout and reaches a satisfying cadence at the end. I don't mean to imply that the left channel, the guitar in the left channel is uh, poorly played or recorded. It's not. This is the interpretation. I just didn't want to, uh, I didn't really explain that as well as I probably should have. Anyway, K144, track nine in G major. This has a slow tempo, and this time the melody is in the left channel, so Jonathan Stell gets the melody here, while uh, Mark Eden is in the right channel, plays the accompaniment. Uh, really, they're both equally expressive when it comes to melodizing, and both use the vibrato subtly and expressively. Then on track 10, the final uh, track, K516 and D minor. These are all sonatas, by the way, I should say. Um, this one's arranged by Stephen Dodgson, who's an English composer that the duo have worked with for many years. And he composed a concerto for two guitars for them, which they premiered in 2013. This particular Scarlatti Sonata, though, that Dodgson has arranged, has a slow, spacious tempo in 3-4 uh, time. It sounds like the lead is back in the right channel for the most part, though the melodic material gets passed around from voice to voice or from channel to channel too, from guitar to guitar. The block chords come across satisfyingly with a gentle lilt provided by the rhythm it's a quiet ending to a well-played and very enjoyable album okay i have to confess that if there's a scarlatti album available i have to hear it because i really love his pieces <laughs> they're really easy on the ear they're short it's just like a little kind of sugar hit for me classically speaking if you could call it that and they're also intellectually engaging as well so there's a lot to like about them 
I want to recommend, before I talk about this album, I want to recommend my three favorite ever Scarlatti recordings. The first one is um, on piano. Ivo Pogorelic's uh, Deutsche Grammophon album recorded in 1991. Still available out there. Also, Murray Pariah's Sony-released album of Handel and Scarlatti works, which was recorded in 1996. And if you prefer the harpsichord, I really enjoyed Jean Rondeau's Erato album from 2018. Mm. Remember that one? Yes. We both heard yeah. that. Yeah, that's a really good one. Now, this Eden Stell, um, this is a guitar duo. One. It's the only guitar duo I've ever heard playing this record repertoire. And I have to tell you, I think it ranks as a, a favorite. It's going to have to be the fourth on that list or... You know, well, I would, I think I'd, you know, it's, it's a unique, uh, timbre here, mm. timbre approach here. So I want to, uh, I have to keep it sort of separate from the rest too, but it ranks as a favorite because it's so unique and the playing is so great. It's more on the harpsichord side of interpretations because it's historically informed, yet there are little touches where the ensemble can add a bit of vibrato to the tone or use the instrument's ability to crescendo and crescendo, decrescendo to bring dramatic expression to certain passages. Uh, the playing is absolutely extraordinary between these two. The two guitars breathing as one, seamlessly handing off lines in a way that made me smile each time I heard it. And Scarlatti's music will make you smile. It's really often bright sounding. Even the slower pieces have a, a sort of um, appeal to them in this way. They're all beautifully rendered interpretations. And if you like Scarlatti as much as I do, you absolutely have to hear this. Incidentally, I also noticed that the Eden Stell guitar duo ha also have a recording of a transcriptions of Mampo's Canzioni mm. Danzas, other works that I love too, for guitar duo released in 2018. I listened to that too, and I also recommend that. It's on the yeah. it's on BGS Records. That's a different label than this one, but uh, listen to that as well. That also kind of made my day. Yeah, I found this really interesting and enjoyable. They can approximate a harpsichord sound when that's yeah. what they want. Right. But they also bring the expanded possibilities of different attacks, tones, and dynamics that the guitar can add in interpretation of these compositions. And then with two guitars, you know, they can divide the work differently, you know, because as each hand on the guitar has a different task in performance. Unlike the harpsichord, where you have two hands basically capable of the same things in different registers. But with the two of them working together, they can do you know these tasks simultaneously. But they work so seamlessly together and are of one mind that they sound like one performer most of the time. And that's the real mesmerizing part yeah. of this recording. And it does just brings a whole new dimension to this old Baroque music, you know, because it's wonderful when it's played on a harpsichord, but here there's new levels of uh, depth and interpretation that become possible. And it's really fun and very, yeah. very musically thought out. I mean, they really thought what they wanted to do, um, where they were going, you know, with each piece here. And I think any guitarist and anyone who likes this music, mm. even keyboard players will find this fascinating. Yeah, in fact, if you find yourself uh, feeling down because of world events, just go right to this album. It's, it's available to you to download. This will just make your yeah. day, you know. I would listen to this in the morning when you get up and just kind of feel good the rest of the day. Okay, so that's my uh, classical album of the week, but uh, I like the other two as well. This next one is called Guitar Divas. It's by Heike Mathieson, and uh, it's on the Ars Production label. Uh, Mathieson... <laughs> 
is one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of women composers. And in fact, that's what we're going to get on this album. Um, it's all women composers who composed um, either for the guitar. Or these are going to be some of them are arrangements, I think. I'm not sure. These are all, um, well, some of them are arrangements of famous tunes by these uh, women composers. Uh, she's German, born in Braunschweig, and now lives in Frankfurt. And she was a master student of Pepe Romero, one of the great classical guitarists of the 20th century. I think I have his recording of the uh, Concierto de Aranjuez, actually. Oh. It's, it's a really great one. All the composers are women on this album and are from the same generation. So it's going to be the early Romantic era in the 19th century, but have different life stories. Okay. I'm more interested in the music, though, but we'll talk about that a little bit. All the works are similar in temperament and are filled with lightness and exuberance, according to the notes. I also want to say, before we get into the music, that you had uh, commented on the uh, the album cover <laughs> of this record. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, Matheson is really, uh, what, was the, what was the expression you said? That she's letting it all hang out out there. She's did I say really, that? Oh, did my. you say something like that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. But yeah, that's quite. it's quite a sight. Uh, this is... Um, you might want to be looking at that album cover while listening to this uh, very well-played uh, album. <laughs> I'm glad um, that the uh, Eden Still duo didn't uh, take the same approach. Uh, <laughs> the guy had a watch cap in the studio, and uh, I was satisfied with that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, should we even be talking about this? Are we Probably are we not. terrible or what? I don't know. Anyway, well, no. Hey, she, yeah, she made put the it cover. out there. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, she looks uh, she looks good and she looks all right. Yeah, so, yeah she's so. around our age too. I'm not gonna say yeah. how old she is, but yeah. um, you know, she's around our age. So I, you know, actually, I was listening to this on the sofa with uh, Mrs. Russ, right? And I kind of said, you know, why don't you uh, try this pose out here too? But it didn't go over. So anyway, <laughs> no, that's too bad. They're very <laughs> Japanese women are very modest that way. They're kind of mm. yeah, you, you know. But anyway, track one, the composer is Emilia Giuliani Guglielmi. And uh, she was born in Vienna in 1813 and died in uh, Pest, you know, the two cities, Buda and Pest, right. which make up Budapest, in Pest in Hungary in 1850. So she didn't live very long. It looks like that's, um, she's in her 30s, I think, when mm. she died. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, maybe around 37. Anyway, this is her prelude number one. Now, she, she had quite a pedigree. Um, her father was the legendary composer and virtuoso Mauro Giuliani. And um, we did, I think, a recording of his um, guitar works, or I have one on this list that we haven't listened to. I'm not really sure. Hmm. But um, he trained her, and she had a concert career continue that continued after her marriage to the composer and singing teacher Luigi Guglielmi. So there's her name, Giuliani Guglielmi. She kept both names. This piece features harmonic inventiveness and frequent modulations. Yes, it does. If you live in Germany, <laughs> you'll recognize the prelude as the signature tune of the music program on SWR2 Public Radio. That's according to the notes. I've never seen the show, but um, this is a familiar work for you Germans. Anyway, it has a rippling arpeggio accompaniment as the melodic material drifts into new key areas. It pretty much goes on that way for its brief two-minute length, and Matthewson plays sensitively. The recording is very close so that you hear her fingers plucking the strings and the squeaking of the guitar um, neck as she changes chords. Um, the recording mostly picks up tone, though, and the playing is sensitive enough that you want to be this close. All right, now this is a two-minute piece, but it was my favorite piece on the album. And that's not to say any of the other ones were any 
you know, lesser. But I just this room just really picked up my ear. I liked all the uh, the harmonic um, material in this. Now, for me, the next three tracks, they're all very long and they're all variations. And okay, full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of the variation form. It kind of my mind starts wandering when I start hearing these. And then there are three of them in a row here, and it's kind of driving me crazy. <laughs> But anyway, let's talk about these variations. They're all very good. I don't want to cast any aspersions on them. That's just me. Track two is Emilia Giuliano, Giuliani Guglielmi again. Variazioni su Non più mesta accanto al fuoco, opus five, which is a song by Rossini. So she's doing um, mm-hmm. variations on that tune. It's the rondo finale of Rossini's opera Cenerentola, which is Cinderella in Italian. Many composers set it as a set of variations, including Chopin, Paganini, and Emilia's father, Mauro Giuliani, so she thought she'd have a try, too. It's a charming theme, as one would expect from such a popular Rossini tune. If anyone's heard Rossini's music, you sort of know how they're... (laughs) A lot of Mm. it's just instantly appealing. Uh, It's got a kind of square rhythm to it when it's introduced, as most uh, variation tunes do. Then the variations start at 127, there's a pause, so you know it's coming. It's pretty straightforward technique with decorative additions to the melodic line. They're tricky passages. Matthewson executes them impressively and sensitively. In fact, she has a rather unique sort of understated, quiet, and cushioned tone that she uses throughout the album. Hmm. Even in these really bravura passages, she managed to, to keep that sound and that tone and that quietness going, it's really impressive and I think unique in guitar playing. I haven't heard anyone play like this before. Anyway, Variation 2 starts at 250 and has repeated notes, those the Spanish repeated notes that we were talking about in the Scarlatti album, and the theme and the sensitively played bass in this case. At 420 is Variation 3 with a lot of additional figures added to the melody. Uh, this variation changes its rhythmic profile with each line, but it has a springing dance quality to it. The material varies as familiar melodies come back with the variation. A minor key variation starts at 550, hushed and spacious, and taken at a slow pace. At 820, we hear the final variation, more virtuosic yet with sensitivity of tone still being heard. Matthewson draws the musicality out of this virtuosic material without strain, making for an enjoyable and very highly musical listen. The rhythm changes for the final iteration of the theme just past 9.30, and there's a rousing finale. All right, the third track is by Anne Emmerich. It's called uh, Variations 6 for Solo Guitar. Now, Emmerich, the dates for her life are 1802 to, and we don't know the date of her death, which is kind of mysterious it's usually the other way around you know you don't know what what the date of birth is but here we don't know what happened to her now she's not to be confused with the mystic and catherine emmerich (laughs) whose information comes up when you search on the internet i was looking for more information about this composer i kept getting the mystic who was born in the 18th century very little is known about Anne Emmerich, the composer. Uh, Mauro Giuliani, the father of Emilia from the first two tracks, dedicated his variations Opus 104 to her after hearing her perform and giving her lessons in Munich. A critic wrote about her that her nature is too noble for this earth. Uh, These variations are her only published composition. And we go to the uh, variations itself. The theme is simple, very pretty, 
almost a campfire folk song-like. It's got an A-B melodic structure. And Matthewson's playing remains quiet and patient. Again, that uh, padded, soft attack, it's, it's really beautiful. At 155, we hear the first variation. It contains a fast-moving stream of accompanimental activity over the straightforward theme and also includes a solid bass line. The second variation starts at 340 and features staccato, at least in Matthewson's interpretation, arpeggiated lines rising up the guitar's range. At around 509 or before, a quieter variation starts. Variation 4 is at 704 and features rippling accompaniment to the demurely played theme. At 757, we have variation 5, also rising arpeggios, but different than before. They sound pretty acrobatic here. The last variation starts at 905. There's a lively hopping texture to bring the piece to an end. Okay, now from track 4 all the way to track 12, we're going to hear music by Katharina Josepha Praten. And she was born in Cologne in Germany in 1821, died in 1895. Uh, this piece is called Carnaval de Venice, and it's um, you know, it's like Mardi Gras in Venice or Carnaval in Venice. And uh, it's another set of variations. <laughs> We're hearing quite a lot of these uh, stringed together. Mm-hmm. She was born Katharina Pelzer in Cologne, and... She performed uh, as a child prodigy together with Giulio Regondi, who became a legendary composer himself. Her father, Ferdinand Pelzer, was a composer, sought-after teacher, and guitar virtuoso. Katharina married the English flautist Robert Sidney Pratton. That's where her name comes from. She performed under the name Madame Sidney Pratton when she was um, in the 19th, uh, performing in the 19th century. She performed well into old age, and she played the English guitar tuned to E major, a very particular instrument which we will hear uh, in one of these tracks. This piece uses a conventional tuning, though. The theme is known in German-speaking countries as a children's song with various texts, but it originated as an Italian folk song, which I didn't recognize, I have to say. It's a set of variations, though. It's a fairly romantic theme. At 151, we hear the first variation played as a kind of folk dance. It's appealing and far more attractive than any variations we've heard in the previous pieces, in my opinion. There's a song-like quality that I was missing in the previous two works. At 244, there's a quick theme and a repeated note variation. Matthewson's playing is especially sensitive here and throughout this set of variations, and really throughout the album. At 346, there's a theme with hammer-on pull-off figures. The next variation features figures leading up to the higher thematic line. The variation at 558 has a song-like question and answer quality to it. It's quickly followed by a faster variation with figures dipping downwards then back up to where they started. At 740, after a pause, a sensitive spacious variation is heard. At 840, the variation is a statement in the high end with a reaction in the bass. Track 5, we're still in Katharina Josepha Praten. The piece is called Rambling Thoughts, and it's one of the few quiet pieces on the program. It starts with a bit of boldness, but again, Matthewson's padded attack uh, doesn't allow it to jump out. And this is, I like this about her playing, actually. The melody that follows this intro is pretty and straightforward. There's nothing wild about these rambling thoughts. They all seem peaceful and thoughtful, as though the thoughts that uh, arise during maybe a meditation. The piece progresses in sections with a return to the opening theme and harmonization at the end. There's a very gently played ending chord that really 
hit me in a good way. Hmm. Track six, Fairy Sketches. Uh, this is uh, one of two of these by Praten. The first is uh, Queen Mab. She's the fairy queen from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And she's uh, graceful. And uh, in this piece, at uh, which is brief at two minutes and ten seconds, it starts with arpeggios and goes to more rippling accompaniment under the rather elegant melody. The piece itself is quiet. There are pauses between sections, and it ends with the opening material, as did the previous piece. The second of the fairy sketches is uh, Puck. He's in Midsummer Night's Dream 2. He's a troublemaker. And this um, variation, or this piece, naturally has a dancing quality to it. We associate dance with the character Puck and his mischievousness. It kind of recalls the uh, La Campanella melody. Anybody know that from uh, Paganini and from uh, Franz oh, Liszt? Yeah. It's kind of a bit of that is in there for this one. It doesn't end the same way, though. It's got a uh, tonic dominant bass line and keeps its dancing profile throughout its brief one minute and 15 seconds. It's really cute. Track eight, Praten, Dance of the Witches, Fantasia Grotesque. Uh, this piece features a score with markings like stage directions. It labels the arrival of the witches, their wild dance, and their disappearance into the woods. So it anticipates film music in a way. There's a build-up to the intro to the main material, which starts at around the 30-second mark. I feel like this piece could use some more characterization. Matthewson has a very pretty tone, and we're hearing that here too. I'm wondering here, though, if some more drama could have been used, because it does sound like a very evocative piece. We do get some more abandon at 2.18, though, when the brief piece heads to its final tranquil chords. Very appealing, though. Track 9, Praten, Fifth Divertimento. Variations on a theme by Mozart. This is from uh, Die Zauberflöte, or the Magic Flute. And this is heard in the radiant E major of the English guitar. So we're hearing the English guitar here. Along with um, bell sounds and lavish flageolet, which is like a recorder. which It's, it's also a name for the Tim Whistle. Uh, these tones are supposed to be being evoked by the guitar. But to be honest, it kind of sounded like a guitar to me all the way through. <laughs> although a brighter one, since it's in the... Uh, it's the E major guitar. So listen for those bell sounds and flageolet or tin whistle tones coming from the guitar. There's an intro. The theme comes in after 30 seconds and sounds like a song theme, but I can't place it really from the opera. Um, even though I've heard like, I haven't heard Magic Flute in quite a while. And this, this piece isn't really, I can't really place it. Mm. But anyway, it's played in thirds and sixths. The first variation at 110 has a flowing bass. Matthewson gets a gentle touch in tone. The second variation at 150 features harmonics, and they sound sonorously on the E major guitar. I'm a big fan of guitar harmonics, so I really enjoyed this one. We're going to hear a lot of those in the next album, by the way. <laughs> at 231, we get rolled bass that makes the theme sound a bit Spanish and very idiomatic for the guitar. The next variation at around 320 features some syncopations in the bass. The variation at four minutes has comments in repeated note harmonics. Track 10, Serenade by Praten. This has Spanish echoes and rich harmonies. It's not a rondo, or it kind of is a rondo, but it's the theme is varied slightly each time you hear it come back. It has a sort of habanera rhythm in the intro. Uh, the theme follows with a bass note and then chord accompaniment, like bass note, then chord, bass note, then chord. Uh, the first departure has a dance rhythm with a hard accent on the downbeat. 
then back to the main theme with rolled arpeggiated chords in the accompaniment. We then hear a theme with a busy active accompaniment. The theme is back at 320, sounding much like it did the second time we heard it, but with some new figuration for its B section. It leaps up for what may be the first forte we've heard on the album at, at the end with a dancey, <laughs> high-stepping feel to it. It ends joyfully with pretty harmonics at the end and a cadence after that. Yeah, this is a very quiet album, uh, and even up to this point, and even after this, it's um, fairly mellow. Good for a late-night listen, really. Track 11, Pratin again, Spanish dance, full of character. Matthewson picks up on these rhythms well bringing out the Spanish quality. Now, there's a B section that's slower than the opening repeats. Track 12, Pratin's Moorish Dance. This is described as a sluggish dance over a Bordun bass, which is a dr- bass with droning open fifths, with a slightly exoticized melody and tambora sound effects. There's an intro, then the exotic strumming of the bass accompanies this characterful melody. The whole thing has a sultry tinge to it. The lighter middle section is played with great sensitivity, a word I find myself returning too often with this guitarist. And the opening repeats. Okay, tracks 13 through 15, we are on the final composer of the album, Maria Dolores de Goñi. She's Spanish, born in Madrid, 1813, died in 1892. The first piece is called La Yota Aragonese. This is a typical yota, which is a dance, and it's usually in 3-4 or 6-8, as it is here and it goes up into the highest register. It's played with a lively mid-tempo rhythm. The melody feels a bit like a folk song. It catches the ear quickly, and the yota rhythm is always identifiably present. At 113, I guess I should say hota for the hota. Hmm. At 113, there's a beautifully executed change of color and a new bass note sounds. Some gorgeous harmonics are heard at 125. And um, I think this one is up there with the first track is the most appealing on the album. I really liked this one too. Track 13, La Rota Aragonese. Please sample that. Track 14, Dagoni Carnival of Venice. This is a contrast to Pratton's romantic style. This one's through composed and offers um, bravura variations with its very own effects. It's very Spanish in style. The introduction is bold, then an arpeggiated bass introduces the theme. There are some mildly humorous effects here, like the brief glissando after the 42nd mark, and we do hear more uh, glissandi at certain points. At 125, a more straightforward variation is heard with arpeggiated chords under the Barcarolle-like melody. There are nice rippling decorations added to the melody just before the two-minute mark. The bass gets the theme for the variation at 215. At 2.53, there are surprising hits to the body of the guitar as part of the rhythm. Then a quick repeated chord variation with the melody in the bass at 3.30 or so. A bold triplet theme is heard at the end. The final track, Dagoni again, La Dieu. A good title for an ending track. It's a slow waltz in thirds and sixths, romantically played with slight rubato at the end of phrases. The piece breathes well and comes across sensitively. Matthewson practically caresses the entire piece out of the guitar. A new spacious theme is heard at the two-minute mark. This piece seems shaped like a rondo as the opening theme comes back at the end. All right, so Matthewson is a gentle player, even maintaining a quiet tone in virtuosic material. You have to go to her, but if you do, the rewards are great. 
The music on this album isn't necessarily gentle, but comes across that way on this recording due to the interpretative quality that Matthewson gives these works. It's actually a pretty soothing listen, as well as uh, being a lesson in some forgotten 19th century musical history. The works make demands on the guitarist, but not on the listener. The program is front-loaded with three long sets of pretty standard variation pieces, uh, which for me was a little too much, despite the beautiful tone and attack in the playing. Matthewson is herself enjoyable to listen to. I would call this recording very feminine in the best sense of the word. And um, the, the performance eschews boldness for beauty of sound. If someone else played these pieces, they'd sound differently. So I'd say this is a unique recording and unique performances of these works, if anyone else were to take them up. Bolder elements are underplayed, though, more for a beautiful effect. Uh, Matthewson is a modest player with a great technique and tone, which he never loses. So should uh, these forgotten pieces by women be played more often? I would say absolutely. There's still a variety of interpretations available to guitarists, and I wouldn't mind hearing other approaches to these works. Have we missed out on hearing some great music by not having ever heard these works? Um, not really. <laughs> They're the salon pieces. We have missed out on a lot of enjoyable music, though, and the playing on this album informs us of that in the glowing feeling that it leaves us with. So these are really kind of light pieces, very enjoyable, and well worth uh, getting to know, I'd say. And uh, an excellent late-night listen I for you. Yeah, I thought it was all pleasant music, a nice program. I think it would be at least worth uh, guitarists' time to check it out and mm. maybe something to add to the repertoire and certainly should be considered for future performances. I'd like to hear other interpretations maybe. Mostly what I got from this uh, recording is Matthewson's playing herself. Uh, right. Really lovely tone. Yes. And what she did with this material, uh, even in all those variations, is bring really excellent phrasing to it. And I thought as a performer that she never sacrifices tone to technique. Right. As some That's even true. great guitarists do. Right. You know, they will bring what they're capable of in speed and other sort of pyrotechnics at the expense sometimes of, uh, you know, the tone. And we allow that. And in her case, I never even sensed that. She has, right. you know, a really good technique, but it's always within the bounds of making a really beautiful sound. And I found that really admirable. Uh, in her playing style. And so that's what I really enjoyed about this performance. Yeah, I found that really unique about her, just that beautiful tone all the way mm. through. And the, the padded attack, too. There aren't any real, like, fingernail-type sharp attacks. I think mm. she uses the, the pads of her fingers a lot. I'm not, you know, I can't really say how she gets the sound, but it's... Uh, really uh, you know, that can be... I'll have something to say maybe in the next recording, too. I, I think it, it's a lot with technique, but it also depends a lot with guitar and microphone placement as to where the sounds get picked up. But I thought this recording was really well-balanced. I, I thought I heard everything in the guitar nicely and a really uh, balance of tones and enough attack. Okay, the last uh, classical album of the week is um, on ECM New Series, hmm. and it's called El Ultimo Aliento which means the last breath. And uh, the title is taken from the final track on the album. So we'll get to that soon. This, the guitarist is Zofia Boros. She's Hungarian and is based in Vienna, Austria. The title and tr title track suggests understated intensity, according to uh, 
the notes I read about this, and uh, I'd say that's a okay, really good description. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a really good description of the album. Well, I got to tell you, when I, you know, I knew you were going to get a contemporary works one in. I tried and to, then yeah. I saw that, and I also saw there was a Hinastera piece on it, and I was, <laughs> I was ready to uh, squeeze the armrests as I listened to it, and my expectations were completely wrong for this recording in a as really pleasant way. Yeah, especially for that uh, Hinastera piece because yeah. he's usually very you know, bold, let's say. Anyway, this is Boros's third recording for uh, ECM New Series. And the focus on the album is split two ways. One spotlight is turned towards contemporary compositions from Argentina, and the other on the multiple idiom-spanning music of French composer Mathias Duplessis. Mm. So we're going to hear a lot of him. And I rather liked his music a lot. I'd like to hear I a lot as more well. of it. Yeah, it was really yeah. nice. After this, I'd like to hear some even works for other uh, instruments that he's written because he's very timbre conscious, mm. like most French composers are. Anyway, Duplessis' music starts the album. Um, he was, by the way, he's French, born in 1972, so he's around your age, I guess. A little younger, yeah. A little younger. Okay. De rêve de pluie of dreams and rain. <laughs> I had a lot of that today. Mm. Anyway. This is extraordinary playing. Like right away on this piece, you yeah. really hear what you're um, in store for. It has a harmonic repeating bass note. So you're hearing harmonics like the, you know, the string isn't, you know, pressed all the way down on the frets and you get that harmonic ringing. Opening the piece followed by a rippling figure and then a melody above that. This is already impressive playing. You're hearing three voices uh, isolated beautifully by the playing. Yeah. It was really extraordinary. I was like... Just wow, right away when I heard this. Um, she Boros keeps the three different voices very clear on the guitar, clearly articulating all of them. The recording is full and has ample reverb, does it yeah. not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's a typical ECM recording. They really like reverb over there. But the recording is also very close. Also typical of ECM uh, records. This is Matt, a Manfred Eicher production, and he really does like his reverb and close recording. So none of the sound gets lost in the reverb. There's never any danger of that. This is a piece with a lot of detail, and it all registers due to the marriage of a clear recording and some technically impressive guitar playing. It's also melodically beautiful, given a bit of Spanish feel in the articulation of the melodic lines. It's a demanding piece to play, appealing to the ears, and beautifully executed here. I'd say this is a must here. Track one. Okay, we get to the uh, Argentinian composers next. Joaquin Alem. This is his piece, Salir Adentro, which I'm guessing means um, hop on or get on board or <laughs> something like that. Okay. The piece with its arpeggiated bass line and yearning melody comes across with a bit of a dance quality to the rhythm. Its melody turns more to figuration as it goes on, always coming back to the melody. I like the full sound of the playing on the recording. The middle section of the piece features the strings being hit or the body of the guitar being hit. It sounds like the strings are being kind of slapped with the, the hmm. palm of the fingers. I'm not really sure how she's doing that. And comes across fully. I'm wondering if the guitar itself is amplified or if it's simply closely mic'd. Do you have any opinions on that? I found this one particularly echoey. Yeah. It depends how you listen to it. If you listen to it in headphones or really you know, close up, you're going to notice this real reverb effect. Right. I think it's just the recording technique, actually. You think? Because okay, yeah. I was wondering if she had pickups on the guitar. I was kind of because it did sound kind of like highly amplified. Anyway, yeah, I'll mention that at the end when I make my okay. comments. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, finger squeaks are fully captured on the fretting hand, and the strummed chords threaten to turn into sound haze, but most of the piece is quiet, and again, detail is captured admirably. Track three, Quique Sinesi. He's born in 1960. El abrazo, which means hug. For this, Boros straps a rubber band around her guitar strings. Mm. Uh, she started doing this so as not to wake her children while they were sleeping and she was playing. And she found the sound particularly beautiful in this piece and recorded it that way. So that's not part of the composition. It's just something she did. Anyway, the muted sound is uh, due to the rubber band. It's pretty interesting, I have to yeah. say. It sounds uh, dry and rattly, especially due to the rapid finger work in the picking hands. The whole approach of the composition reminds me a bit of uh, Enya, <laughs> the way she would figure, you know, her figuration, you know, on the piano when she, in a lot of those um, kind of slower pieces. Uh, needless to say, it's a quiet piece with the rubber bands. There's a lovely passage with harmonics at around 2.30 that you may have to turn up the volume to hear. Anyway, track four, the dreaded Alberto Hinastera, the only <laughs> non-living composer on this album. Now, I'm a big fan of Hinastera. I recommend his harp concerto to anybody who doesn't know his music. He, <laughs> in that piece, he, his music can be very almost barbaric in its rhythmic uh, intensity. And he wanted to change the profile of the harp from an angel instrument to something a little more... Uh, Satanic. Yeah, and uh, he, he achieves that well in that piece. It's, it's actually got some great... Uh, melodies in it too so give that a listen here however we're hearing uh milonga opus three it's uh unusual for him or for what i've heard of him it's a fairly atmospheric work it's gentle not a quality i associate with this composer <laughs> and brief at two minutes and 15 seconds it comes across as a folk song as the melody is in the foreground and it's very pretty mm. anyway we get back to matthias duplessis le secret d'hiroshige who apparently is Japanese. I don't really have any information on Hiroshige. The, maybe. Uh, hmm? Woodblock artist, isn't it? Is he? Yeah. Okay. I guess we're going to find out what his secret is here in this piece. Uh, it has a spare beginning with gentle. Yeah, that's Gentle is an operative word for this entire program <laughs> and album, really. It's gentle sounds in the upper voice. The spacious nature of the theme is continued by rapid repeating notes in the high end and a bass line in the lower. Generally, the upper voice will pose a melodic line and the lower end will answer. In the middle, the melody on top becomes more emphatic, but never obtrusive. Strong, loud, rapid repeated notes are heard near the end, followed by a gentle line with harmonics to end the piece. So I guess that um, the, the kind of question answer quality of the piece, if you can translate musical sound into words, you would know. The secret of Hiroshige. Track six, Duplessis, Pearl de Rosé. This is a steadily repeating chord pattern that underlines a descending thematic line with clever decorative content. The piece then morphs into something with a happy feel to it as the melody in the upper voice becomes clearer, enthusiastically pushed forward by the rippling rhythm in the lower end. Again, impressive playing by Boros, who's balancing the volume and tone of several layers of lines. She's really got an excellent technique. Mm. Track seven, Quique Sinesi, Tormenta de Illusion. And uh, this is played on the Ron Rocco, which is a stringed instrument from the Andean regions. It's kind of lighter. If you've heard Andean musicians playing, if you mm. live in a big city, you know, sometimes they're around with those kind of smaller guitars. That's the sound of this um, instrument. 
The instrument has 10 strings arranged in five double courses, sort of like a 12-string guitar, except that this one has um, 10. It's similar to the charango, the instrument for which Sinesi originally conceived the piece. This piece is rooted in South American folklore. Okay, we have the internet. We can look up what these instruments are, but I just want to point out, (laughs) I really hate it when people say that. What is a ronroco? Oh, you know, it's like a charango, and I don't know what that is either. (laughs) Is it like a burrito or what? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I did look them up on the internet, and I've seen Mm. these instruments before. We've heard, um, I think, Peruvian musicians playing similar guitars. Anyway, the ronroco has a sound akin to the mandolin. And Mm. again, it's recorded very close in a very reverberant acoustic all of the detail is perfectly caught due to the closeness, and there's a lot of figuration to be heard. The thematic material also moves rather quickly. We hear repeated notes in two separate voices in the material at around the one minute mark, and the opening repeats. Track eight is Duplessis again, uh, Le Labyrinthe de Vermeer. Now Vermeer, I know, is the, the painter. This starts slowly and ponderously with a harmonic in the bass. Yeah, I should have guessed Hiroshige from this. He's got a thing for painters here. Okay, there's a harmonic in the bass answered by the high end, then a full-tone bass note and another answer. It goes from there into more complex lines, always atmospheric. The middle section changes to a more melodic profile. Once again, there are rapidly repeated notes in the high end accompanying a bass line at 320, a technique uh, Duplessis seems to favor. We've heard it quite a bit on this Mm. album in his works. The middle section ends with a beautiful atmospheric harmonics, then we get a sort of coda leading to a harmonic to end the piece. Track 9 is Duplessis again, Berceuse, which is a lullaby. It's a very beautiful theme played with sensitive bass notes. It's more song-like than the other Duplessis pieces, yet full of atmosphere, as we would expect from him. It quietens as it goes on, as though it's trying to lull the baby to sleep and getting quieter as the baby <laughs> loses consciousness right. you know, more and more. And then it ends very quietly. Track 10, Duplessis, Valse pour Camille. It's a waltz rhythm that's more of a song than a dance. In fact, this doesn't really sound like a danceable waltz. It's just got a waltz sort of rhythm. The harmony is evocative and colorful in the bass line, which also keeps the rhythm. The melody is front and center throughout. There's not much meandering into figuration, though there are some beautiful close harmonies in the higher end in the middle of the piece. The opening material returns to end this gracefully played piece. And I also enjoyed the um, the thing that takes away from the dance-like quality is that in the bass, there's some pretty colorful sort of harm, uh, harmony. There's some colorful harmony that doesn't really sound smooth. You know what I mean? So I really enjoyed that about it too. Some notes really stuck out. The final track, Carlos Moscardini, born in 1959. This is the title track, El Ultimo Aliento, meaning the last breath starts fully in harmonics, but eventually gets to more melodic material. The harmonics, which are gorgeous, return at 142, followed by a gentle melody of rippling bass figures. It ends on an open-ended harmonic line. All right, well, I had the volume turned up considerably for this album, eager as I was to capture all of the detail. Some of it's very quiet. The program seems to have been chosen for its atmospheric nature, the music relies on the quieter sounds of the guitar and seems to want to cast a mood, putting it in line with a lot of ECM releases, as is the highly ver- reverberant space it's recorded in. ECM is clearly going for atmosphere on this recording. Barossa's playing is captivating throughout. She phrases musically and expressively, 
using Roboto to perfection when needed, for example, in the Hinastera work. I think this is a program that relies on timbre, especially the Duplessis works, and Boros has a genuine feel for that, capable of a lot of tones and touches. The program itself went by fast. So enjoyable and undisturbing was it, and short. It's only 39 minutes long, very short for a classical recording. You might want to put it on repeat, because I really did want was left wanting to hear more after the Mm. album was over. It's something different for the guitar, an atmospheric recital. We don't usually associate atmospheric playing with the guitar, and it works very well here. All of the tracks are sort of pop song length, uh, sort of like the Scarlatti album, so I guess it makes a good bookend to that album, averaging around three to around three and a half minutes. I suppose 39 minutes is long enough. I would put this on repeat and listen a lot more. <laughs> I liked it a lot. It, 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 I guess it should have been longer. I'll admit it. I wanted it to be longer. Yeah, this was a pleasant surprise for me. What a dreamy collection of music. And yeah. uh, everything fits in the program well, even the Hinistera, which I was worried about after the violin concerto we heard recently, which uh, the, uh, had the, my... The, uh, the only thing that worries me about Hinistera is the neighbor's. anyway this was even his piece was uh very mild and pleasant and fit right in i was especially charmed by the duplessis compositions yeah i like those and boros's playing is really beautiful first of all a lovely tone in all the registers pearly high notes wonderful phrasing this is one of the prettiest collections of guitar music in one recording that i've ever heard Hmm. and The recording itself, the sound is rich and full. In some places, the reverb is a bit much for my taste. (laughs) Reminds me a bit of those old uh, Wyndham Hill, like George Winston recordings. (laughs) (laughs) And in a few places, I wanted a bit more articulation sound. Most of this is soft touch kind of uh, playing. There's a couple places where she uses more you know, nail in the attack mm-hmm. that comes through. But in general, I could have used a little bit more edge. And I think mm-hmm. it's more in the mix, maybe a bit in the mic placement. But overall, no major complaints. The guitar just sounds lovely. And it really matches the overall mood that is supposed to be evoked from these pieces, which it does really well in each piece and in the collection as a whole. So really beautiful recording of guitar music with a unique character. Definitely check this one out. Yeah, we really uh, hit the jackpot uh, this week uh, in classical and in jazz, too, coming up. Jazz is pretty unique, too. And we'll move over to the uh, jazz side of the Guitarosaurus (laughs) episode here. (laughs) Why are we calling it that? I don't know. We should call it like, uh, you know, Guitaromousis or something. I don't know. (laughs) It's a pretty quiet album. A better better word to describe it. All right. Anyway, our first recording is on Steeplechase. It's a duo recording called Snapshots, and it's from guitarist Nate Radley and pianist Gary Versace. It came out June 23rd. Now, Nate Radley's a guitarist born in Concord, New Hampshire, studied music at New England Conservatory, and he graduated in 2000, and he moved to New York City in 2003. We've heard him before on the podcast his previous release, Puzzle People, that's back in episode 46. It was called Fretboard Free for All. <laughs> that's a pretty so, good title. It was a pretty good name. <laughs> that was a trio recording of which I said, this is my own quote, Radley's solo ideas really pull you in and make you want to listen to his ideas. The original tunes are interesting, as are the arrangements of the other cover tunes. And I enjoyed the space and breathing room 
and adaptive rhythm exploration from the great interplay between the trio. So remembering that recording and considering his uh, partner here, Gary Versace, who I've always really enjoyed as an accompanist, I thought this would be an interesting one to check out. Now, Versace was born in Greenwich, Connecticut, 1968. He took private piano lessons with the great Kevin Hayes, and he studied at the Eastman School of Music, retained a master's in music performance, and he also moved to New York in the early 2000s. He's also well known for his organ playing and working with the Grammy Award-winning big band of Maria Schneider. And I've always liked his accompaniment playing, and we've heard him a few times on the podcast in that role. And so I thought the interplay would be really good on this album, and I was not disappointed. Yeah, me neither. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's an interesting thing. When you get two instruments, there's not many instruments that are complete instruments, but guitar and piano are, and they also can work a lot in the same register. So you need players, you know, even on one recording, we have guitar and piano, they have to be you know, dividing roles and not sort of overlapping. And in just a duo format, uh, you don't hear it too often, but this works really wonderfully here. And we're going to have a lot of Radley's uh, original compositions, as well as some really interesting choices of tunes to cover. But we're going to start out with his original composition, Juniors. That kind of uh, interaction I was hoping for comes right away here. Radley gets this going with some chords with a kind of choppy, playful rhythm. Versace joins the chord figures and adds bouncy interval figures in between that they start to work together. And it keeps you guessing about the meter of this tune as it develops with more little phrases. But then it takes on more of a clear four beat kind of feel to it. A new section has Versace getting some ringing high register dancing figures over muted lower lines from Radley. And then they lock in with a repeated rhythmic phrase idea that works around the harmonies and builds up and gets more variation. Uh, Radley solos first over snappy chords from Versace and plays interesting melodic lines of tight figures into some chord soloing and then longer lines of ideas. And what I like about him is his varied articulation. It's always really interesting, and this is just one example of it. Versace's solo has relaxed phrasing with tumbling figures, getting more rhythmic, and then interesting two-hand figures in the upper register, some speedy triplet figures as well. They get into more sections of exchanges and working lines together. It gets softer and more flowing before a return to the original snappy figured melody with some heavier joint chord work as well. Comes down soft and works up over the repeated kind of rhythmic phrase section that we heard before into a final snappy section with a little slowdown at the end. Great bouncy rhythmic interplay on this tune. Track two is another Radley original, Big Reach. And Radley gets it started with a four-bar intro of alternating chords with a very fun bass line. Versace joins in for a round as well, some tasty ringing piano lines. And they work together on a first section of the melody. Uh, It's like a 12-bar blues, but takes some interesting harmonic turns from the seventh measure. Then it seems like it's going to repeat in the next section because you get the kind of same first four bars, but then it goes in a completely different direction from the fifth measure. And that section goes on out to 19 measures. Uh, Mm. It's a kind of unusual composition structure there. And Versace gets some bluesy piano going to 
pass things back to Radley for some improvising. Interesting springy phrases, bluesy licks, and chord phrases mixed in, triplets and muted ideas before it's finished. Radley continues with some muted bass and chord ideas under Versace's swingy and bluesy piano solo with fun triplet ideas and trills, and they go through the melody sections again, and then work up a vamp for some more final exchanges to the end. Track three, Some Other Blues, a John Coltrane tune. You know this from John Coltrane's Coltrane Jazz, 1961. While the original recording starts right in on the 12-bar blues form, they give it a rhythmic intro of eight measures, and Radley takes the melody for two rounds. Versace solos first, keeping it swinging lightly and repeating some rising scale ideas. And then check out Radley's constantly evolving accompaniment, starting with ringing chords, then a more bouncy feel, working a walking bass line as well. Radley's solo starts off with more country blues kind of riffs, but he works into some harmonic tension with lines weaving in and out of the chords. Versace has some cool rhythmic bass notes mixed in with his chords behind. They trade improvisation fours uh, before a final melody run, repeating the final phrase a few times into some raindrop-like high tinkling notes from Versace to finish it. Track four is also a Radley original, Penumbra. It's a slow atmospheric minor tune. It starts with an eight measure intro of tremolo guitar chords over a slow four note piano bass ostinato line with some high piano tinkles in there. They both take the melody line together that has guitar slide kind of phrases in the notes. There's a repeating eight measure A section, the second half of which returns to the intro idea. Uh, the B section modulates with the descending second half, then a final section that has like four measures of the intro idea, and then eight measures of more harmonic movement. Versace starts with some soft but rhythmic repeated note ideas into a gentle solo, and Radley keeps the bass line going underneath with a muted touch in spots while the tremolo tones keep ringing above. Radley has a tasty solo here with little bends and bluesy touches and trilly ideas. They return to the melody sections with some variation and improvised ideas continuing on over a rhythmic vamp that builds up with ringing chords from Radley until it becomes softer and choppy to the end. Very nice subtle playing in this tune. Track 5, another Radley original, Almost April. It's kind of a modally tune with a lot of harmonic mm. shifts in it. It starts with a rhythmic piano figure from Versace that Radley joins in for a 16-measure intro. There's a little pause and a change of chord. I'm not sure of the structure here, but it seems like two 18-measure sections and then a transition section of synced-up bass figures that makes a transition to a bright harmony change for Radley to start a solo over with funky little bass figures from Versace. Radley's muted notes are really tasty and fun, and the changing rhythmic feels are engaging. They work up to a ringing chord section together that Versace moves into his solo from. Uh, he shows a light bouncy touch and some speedy runs all over tricky left-hand rhythms, and things get light and trickly before returning to the melody, ending up with the synced bass line phrases. Oh, and here's a surprising one. Track six, Three Days, <laughs> Willie Nelson. <laughs> this is a song uh, written by Willie Nelson that was originally recorded by Farron Young, 1961, The Young Approach. And Willie Nelson recorded his own version of the song on his 1962 debut album, And Then I Wrote. Well, check out that version if you don't know it. It's a great little tune. Uh, but they slow that down and give it more of a bluesy groove here uh, compared to Willie's original version. And they come right in with no intro. Radley takes the melody, 
Uh, and this tune starts with the chorus. You know, once in a while that happens on a tune. You get chorus and then verse. Versace is up for a relaxed but rhythmic solo first over tasty muted bass interval ideas from Radley. He works into more animated lines, more rollicking bluesy two-hand ideas. Radley has a lot of fun here with hesitated notes and double stop lines mixed in with chords and trills before more fluid speedy lines come out. And they trade some cool lines of triplets and other chordy ideas before a fun final rhythmic run through the melody sections and a bluesy ending. Ah, a great choice of a country tune to give a jazz take on. I thought it was a lot of fun. And then a tune I haven't heard for a while, but I was uh, happy to hear it again. Who Can I Turn To? Anthony Newley and Leslie Bercuse. Uh, this is originally from the musical The Roar of Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. I guess it was... Uh, <laughs> in the UK first in 1964, but it didn't do well. And then it made a tour of the US uh, later that year. Uh, the first release of the tune, 1964, Shirley Bassey, or Bassey. Uh, but Tony Bennett recorded it the same year and had kind of a hit with it. So Radley starts it out with an intro of soft, lush chords under the melody that he plays as well, into more arpeggio and bass ideas as well. He gets a slow strumming groove going for Versace to bring in an impossibly soft and high improvised <laughs> piano line thing going. I had to turn it up really loud to hear what was going on here. Um, right. uh, he brings things a little bit lower in register, still with a delicate touch, and Radley is soft and subtle in his solo on this tune as well. He works back into the melody to a tasty ending with some pretty final rippling chord changes from Versace. Track eight, Wrong Ago by hmm. Nate Radley is original. A happy, bouncy, rhythmic tune. There's a little repeating phrase that gets modulated around over the chord changes in the 32 mel measure melody construction. Uh, Radley solos first, and this one shows off his varied articulation abilities nicely. Muted notes, choppy rhythmic ideas into more flowing lines. Versace is in sync, constantly changing his backing up ideas with choppy chords and walking bass in spots. And Radley takes a rest and gives Versace space to start out his solo that on his own that has some interesting darting bass lines and animated right-hand ideas as well. They exchange some happy, melodic, improvised lines before a final enthusiastic run through the melody. Track 9, Chloe, or originally Chloe's Song of the Swamp by Charles N. Daniels. This is an old tune 1927 i think it's from the show africana and i think charles and daniels also had a pseudonym neil moray and this tune had lyrics by gus khan it's kind of a jazz standard now anyway radley starts it off solo with a bounce on the melody over a mix of strums and bass notes versace gets the next round and they trade back and forth happily Versace's got the first solo, and it swings easily over the muted bass and then walking lines of Radley. Melodic and classy phrasing with mixing up of rhythms. Versace keeps the walking bass and then bounce idea going under Radley's solo. It has some repeated note and triplet ideas in choppy chord play. The two interact with some interval lines and more exchanges of phrases into a final run through the melody, and Radley ends it up with a playful final descending line. Well, this is a recording where the joy of playing really shines through. The rhythmic interaction is great, with so much going on. It's amazing how they can sync up and interact without stepping on each other's toes rhythmically. There are a few standards with enjoyable duo arrangements. Radley's original tunes are interesting, and the Willie Nelson tune was a fun choice for a cover. Radley's playing is unique and creative with a mix of articulation and lots of melodic ideas. And Versace is versatile and classy with constantly evolving accompaniment and tasty melodic solos. Most of all, it's 
the great interplay that will make you want to keep listening again and again to this recording. Yeah, it made me keep wanting to listen. And uh, I also like the program a lot. You had mentioned like mm. Chloe is the, um, you know, a very old tune and they had some originals and then there were the Anthony Newley tune. They're kind of, it's a real variety of yeah. um, pieces and approaches as well. I, I just like the entire album. I liked all the styles. They came up with a lot of um, styles like the bluesy piano and then there was the swinging things. And sometimes within the same piece, they would go through a lot of different styles. The interplay is fantastic. Just the interesting combination of timbres between the two instruments. I liked the changing timbral combinations that these two instruments were able to produce, like on right. tracks like Almost April. Right. Um, they do this a lot. I also like the way the rhythm is subtly worked with on three days, so that the piece gradually begins to swing more and by the end becomes more bluesy, like it sort of morphs hmm. into like different kinds of, uh, you know, different. it morphs into something different as it goes. Right. That kind of appealed to my classical side. Uh, very inventive approaches by both musicians <laughs> together. It's an album with ideas, and all of them are appealing. And yeah, I want this one for the the collection. I think great yeah. feel too. And yeah, it was a fun record too. It was really fun. You you can pick up on the nice energy they had between the two of them, and, right? Uh, very intuitive listening to it. It's more than listening to each other, they actually become yeah. sort of one in thinking on their approach to these songs. So I can recommend it a lot. Yeah, very enjoyable. Yeah, and you mentioned also Gary Versace. Like he, I was trying to figure out where have I heard this name before, and it was Maria Schneider. She's, uh, I, I'm a big fan of hers, actually. Right. So I've heard his playing quite a bit. I think, you know, his solos and, and his own playing is really great, but I can see why he's in demand as a sideman because he, you know, he listens and anticipates right. and reacts almost instantaneously when he's uh, playing with someone else and uh, that kind of synergy really comes out. Yeah, this one's going to have to go into the collection <laughs> one one day, maybe maybe for Christmas. Maybe when I get my tax return in February. <laughs> we got a lot of CDs to buy. Yeah, I got a lot Although of CDs to buy. They're one of these labels that uh, have uh, really reasonably placed uh, releases. So Okay, that's good. Should be able to uh, get that in Japan here soon. Okay. All right, the next recording, also on another label that uh, I like, and that's Sunnyside. And this is Way Back by guitarist Davey Mooney. And this came out on June 9th. Mooney's a native of New Orleans, and he studied music from a young age. He went to Ben Franklin High School and also the famed New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, where he also worked as an instructor. And then he went on to University of North Texas and later enrolled in the University of New Orleans to get his master's degree. Then in 2005, only two weeks after evacuating New Orleans due to Hurricane Katrina, he finished third in the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Competition, and he went on to get his PhD in jazz performance in 2015 from New York University after finishing a dissertation about the early works and music of Joe Pass. Well, this album has a theme, and that's uh, Brazil, which mm -hmm. has become a regular feature in his life, according to the album notes on Bandcamp, after meeting his Brazilian girlfriend and now wife in 2001. He had been intrigued by the combination of jazz guitar and Brazilian music, and he started to play with uh, those musicians there in 2011, where he met uh, some of these musicians. And so in this uh, recording, we're going to get uh, the influence of these Brazilian players, uh, along with, uh, you know, some other influences in here and a variety of rhythmic feels. And this recording was made in July 2022, actually in Brazil, a studio in Campinas, Brazil. 
So we've got Davey Mooney on guitar and a little bit of vocals on one track <laughs> here. John Ellis on tenor sax and bass clarinet, who I believe is also a New Orleans native and also on the New York scene as well. And we've got our Brazilian rhythm section, Felipe Silveira on piano, Tiago Alves on bass, and Paulino Vicente on drums. We'll start out with a Davy Mooney original, The Ancient Song, a kind of solo descending bass line that then gets picked up by the piano and then Mooney's guitar as Ellis floats a pretty sax line on top, gets things going. And Mooney and Ellis then work harmonized lines together over the piano descending line. The bass gets that line again into a new section where Ellis's sax line is complemented by his bass clarinet on another track below. Vincente works up with cymbals to a heavy insistent backbeat on the sections that kind of builds up and comes back again. Ellis gets a suave tenor solo that flows but lifts with interval jumps over thick rhythmic chords from Mooney, and there's a modulation, and the sax solo continues, getting more wispy into composed lines, joined by Mooney, and then bass and drums drop out for the sax lines to continue over piano and guitar as a transition to a solo from Mooney. Here's a really warm guitar tone with a mix of shorter and longer weaving fluid phrases on this solo. The sax lines over descending that descending riff of guitar and then piano with harmonized sax and guitar sections come back and take it to the end. We've got the title track for number two, Davy Mooney's original Way Back. Swinging and syncopated, this tune is built around a repeated phrase idea shared with guitar and sax that changes with the harmonies. There's an opening section of two different eight measure sections, then the sections of eight measures and six measures come up that repeat again. Severe is up for a piano solo next over charging walking bass from Alves. He plays flowing melodic lines broken up by spaces that build anticipation nicely, pushing more with chords as he goes along. Amuni falls with another fluid solo. He builds some tension with shorter phrases and then some hammer-ons in his phrasing as well. And Ellis gets to trade some eighths soloing with Vicente's drums. They play through the melody sections the same as the beginning with some final smooth doodles from Mooney at the end. Track three, another Mooney original, Bachian. Apparently this takes its uh, idea from the structural concept of Johann Sebastian Bach. It's kind of, uh, they describe it as a martial cadence uh, that you hear with the bass and bass clarinet. I thought it's a really unique one with uh, guitar and sax unison phrases that alternate with the kind of full ensemble measures where that bass clarinet works with the bass line. And the phrase lengths and meters change up to keep you thinking. Uh, the first two guitar and sax phrases are six beats. Uh, then they change to five. And the four beat measures of the full band in between uh, sometimes change up to three beats as well. The guitar and sax line gets more development as it goes on. And then after a transition section, they split into harmony uh, before the final unified phrase uh, launches Mooney on a solo that features some speedy double time licks and minor melody exploration. Silveira gets a piano solo next with a meandering quality. Uh, the guitar and sax phrases return over the bass clarinet and bass, which then carry on over the progression for Vincente to do some drum work with precision placed hits and fills. And guitar and sax lines come back into the harmonized section and a final phrase, just like the opening, to end it. Track four, Mooney's original in this position, 
And apparently this is inspired by his newly found passion for chess. Hmm. So piano and guitar started out with ringing, slightly dissonant phrases, a rising bass line and drums add in, and then Alice with legato sax phrases. There's a contrasting section of more syncopated piano chords giving an atmosphere of contemplation before Mooney is up for his own solo. It's got a nice relaxed groove, and Mooney matches it with his phrasing. The syncopation of the piano chords gives it a forward push, and the opening phrases return for a sax solo from Ellis. His short tones at the start are interesting. It's kind of like a, I thought of something hatching out of an egg <laughs> to get going, like breaking free. Then he works into more animated ideas and into the high register as well, uh, pushed on by Mooney's rhythmic chords. He works back to the melody with the legato sax phrases over the interlocking piano and guitar lines coming to a gentle ending. Track five, Mooney's Meaning in a Streetlight, and this takes its title from a lyric in uh, the Sting song, For Her Love. The vocal by Mooney is kind of uh, giving advice to his young sons. So a gently swinging feel with drum brushes and soft guitar and sax melody phrases. There's a repeating eight measure section with pauses at the end and then two shorter four measure sections before Mooney comes in with vocals that follow that previous sax and guitar pattern. As I said, giving his vice to his sons and the vocal works along with his guitar lines. Uh, things get off to more of a swing with walking bass under Mooney's guitar solo, and really fluid here with a mix of double-time licks and little pauses. Saviera follows with nice lazy swing feel for his solo on the piano and some tasty embellishments in his lines. The two eight-measure sax and guitar phrases return into the last section of the vocal line from before with a few final phrase repeats to end it. Track six, Wintry Mix. Mooney said this is uh, inspired by the winter weather of Denton, Texas, where uh, Mooney taught at University of North Texas. Uh, this one's got a real dreamy start with an eight-measure intro of light guitar strums over a descending bass line and very pretty piano trickles from Silviera. And Ellis floats soft sax lines on top of that. It makes a delirious little dissonant feel in some spots and then he adds bass clarinet below for another round of that uh, he continues on with more sax and then there's a new section with some really low bass clarinet puffs uh, with the bass line the sax comes in on top again with wispy lines to a clearing of the skies it's like this if this is a weather uh kind of a theme. I imagine the sky's cleared here and then Mooney starts a solo over skittering cymbals from Vicente he weaves through the new chord changes here smoothly and speedily with nice phrasing and melodic ideas. Then the puffy bass clarinet section returns to get Ellis started on his own sax solo. He blows very fluttery phrases here with interesting interaction from Silviera's ringing piano. They get back to the opening feel and bass line with both sax and bass clarinet on the lines into more sax lines over bass clarinet to finish it up. Track 7. Liz, and this is Mooney's tribute to rock singer Liz Fair, one of his favorite musicians. Oh, excellent. I know her. Mm. Yeah, flowing six-measure sax and guitar phrases over a clicky beat that we hear four times. Then there's a contrasting eight-measure section of syncopated sax and guitar lines that lock into the bass below, but with more of just cymbal accents on the drums, and a final new six-measure section of melody. Then Ellis gets a sax solo next, 
with the return of the clicky beat and Mooney's guitar chords and throbbing bass from Alves that give it more of a samba feel, and Mooney follows with a fluid guitar solo, and then they take it through all the melody sections once more to end it. Track eight, Doom Scroll. <laughs> I like that title. Yeah, could be a good title, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a relaxed waltz feel for this one. Ellis takes the simple melody, mostly one note per measure in the higher range of the bass clarinet. It's a 32 measure melody, AABA form, with an interesting pause in the B section. Alvis gets a deep and ringing bass solo on this one with strong attacks and bluesy touches over soft guitar from Mooney. Silveira has a sensitively played piano solo next with restraint and a nice sense of dynamics and touch. And Mooney follows with a guitar solo that works the warm lower register. And then Ellis gets a turn on bass clarinet, covering the full range of the instrument. Nice tone and relaxed phrasing. And a final play through the melody wraps it up. Track nine, La Bruja. This is an arrangement of a traditional son Jarocho Mexican song from Veracruz, where the notes say Mooney spent some time last year. We get a 6-8 feel for this one with a great loping bass and bass clarinet line uh, for the first eight-measure intro. But check out the fun little skip in the rhythm and then also Sivera's pretty ringing piano tones. Uh, Mooney takes the charming minor melody. The clarinet and bass idea come back for interludes in there, and Vicente adds snappy brush accents on the drums. Mooney solos first with a good flow of ideas, and Sivera follows with an interesting solo of rhythmic phrases and building percussive ideas. And they reset with the intro idea into another go at the melody, and Vicente has switched to sticks, on the way and adds more accents and hits to push it to the end. And the final track, Mooney's Checkup, it's a straight bossa nova tune and the harmony is inspired by Billy Strayhorn's tune, Upper Manhattan Medical Group. It's a relaxed kind of uh, bossa feel and simple melody shared by Mooney's guitar and Ellis's tenor sax. It's a 32 measure AABA structure. Alvis's bass gives it a good throb of motion, and Mooney solos first with a mix of speedy double-time licks, tastier shorter phrases as well, and Ellis has an airy tenor solo with good upper register tone, and Silveira gets a piano solo too, showing off his gentle sense of touch and soft dynamics. One more round of the melody to a slightly hesitated ending. And that wraps it up. It's a fresh-sounding recording owing to Mooney's original compositions that build simple ideas into interesting arrangements. All the tunes are unique with a variety of feels, swinging, and Brazilian rhythms handled with confidence from the Brazilian rhythm section. Mooney's solos are fluid and melodic with a great warm guitar tone, and he often works on the melodies of his compositions together with Ellis's sax. And Ellis's tenor solos are energetic, and the bass clarinet adds a lot of atmosphere and variety in the arrangements. I enjoyed Silvera's piano playing throughout, both backing and in his solo ideas. And Alves' bass is steady, and his one solo was impressive. And Vicente's solid with a lot of perfectly timed accents and hits to build momentum in the tunes. Yeah, a very nice recording. Yeah, I actually thought it was a great sounding recording, too. It kind of mm. sounded like each instrument was individually mic'd in a studio, it, you know, sort of like a... I wouldn't say it was produced like a rock record. It sounded live, but, I mean, they kind of sort mm. of isolated the instruments in the mix, I think. Every, you can hear everything really fantastic. I thought this was a, it's a... You know, you said Brazilian. I, I thought it was a quiet album, mostly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with solos landing on the more intimate side, and, in fact... uh Mooney's guitar tone is particularly like 
intimate and lovely. It feels like it's always telling you a secret, you know, it's yeah, got yeah. some dark tone, some, some words of love. It's going to whisper in your ear, you know, hmm. and he's got a lot of class too and communicates the intimacy really well. I, I myself warm to his phrasing. I thought this album was a good late night listen. I'm always thinking of like, like I'm like I'm thinking of Indian ragas. I'm always thinking what right. time of day would be the best time to listen to this. I think this is another good late night listen. Uh, also, early morning would be okay too. Although I tend to do classical only in the morning. Anyway, it's okay. Goes for intimacy in the solos and uh, themes are very pretty and understated. Doesn't want to disturb polite company. I feel like Mooney is the standout player on the album, although everybody's very good. And I loved hearing the bass clarinet when it yeah. appeared. Yeah. That's always a nice surprise for me. You know, normally, like, if I, when I know something's, like, overdubbed, I think, ah, oh, yeah. you know, like... But it works here really well. Um, yeah. It's well thought out and really adds a lot of atmosphere to the tunes. Right. Piano solos, too, I liked a lot, too. Yeah, he, he nice had touch. these spacious um, chords, and mm. they... Uh, the harmonics that come in between those were able to really just bloom. The sound is really well caught right. um, in the spacious chord voicings. So it's enjoyable, quiet, great sounding recording. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, fresh compositions. Yeah. yeah. You've never heard any of these tunes before. It's always nice to get uh, some original music with a lot of variety and uh, right. nice arrangements. So check it out. Great guitar sound and uh, fluid solos. Definitely Good. worth checking it out. Very intimate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I had to uh, include this uh, last one because, uh, well, it's a player who's the living history of jazz. Yeah. And that's the guitarist George Freeman and his recording on High Note Records, The Good Life, came out June 23rd. George Freeman has uh, been part of jazz for almost a century. He's 96 years old. Can yeah, you that's almost that? like the entire history of jazz, really. He's going way back to yeah. near, the, near the beginning. You know? Right. Now, he's the brother of saxophonist Von Freeman and the uncle of Chico Freeman. So, all musical family. He was born April 10th, 1927 in Chicago. He made his first recording with the Joe Morris Orchestra in 1947. Mm -hmm. Collaborated with Charlie Parker twice in Chicago and once in Detroit, 1950 and 51. And he's played with lots of other jazz greats, the organist. Groove Holmes, saxophonist Gene Ammons, Johnny Griffin, and uh, living jazz history here with a new recording. And what also drew me to this is uh, this may be one of the last or the last recordings that uh, great organist Joey DeFrancisco made before Mm -hmm. he uh, passed away last year. And he really shines on it, too. Yeah, he sounds great. And uh, we may not get to hear anything new that we haven't heard from Joey DeFrancisco. So I definitely wanted to hear that. And that's just amazing to, yeah. <laughs> to still be breathing at 96, but uh, to still be playing guitar um, is a great achievement. So I wanted to hear this. And it, yeah, it's kind of enjoyable uh, to see what he's still doing at this age. So George Freeman's on guitar. Joey DeFrancisco is on the first half of the album, tracks one, two, and three, as well as Lewis Nash. These are two different sections. That f- first session was made in uh, June. Let's see. No, actually, this is li- later, actually, but it's the first on the recording, uh, June of 2022. And then tracks four to seven were made earlier in May, and those feature Carl Allen on drums and Christian McBride on bass uh, to form the trio. We're going to start out with uh, the old tune. Oh, I say old tune. Uh, if I Had You, 
1928, <laughs> but wow. it's actually uh, younger than George Freeman, right? Yeah. Uh, this was an uh, early hit version in 1929 by Rudy Valley. Huh. That's a name you don't hear very often anymore. And Al Boley. Well, this one gets going with a great organ intro from uh, Joey D. Throbbing bass, skittering lines and chords. Uh, really, really exciting. Freeman takes the melody plainly in no hurry, uh, letting some notes ring. And he lets some speedy notes fly on the final section with some punchy articulations too. And Joey DeFrancesco solos first, building nicely with lots of space into amazing zipping lines, percussive chords, really great organ playing. Uh, Louis Nash has a great groove with a click going. And Freeman starts his solo with tasty sparse licks, little slick phrases. He had some cool trilly lines and works on repeated riff. Then he gets down low, surprising with some <laughs> notes that are kind of not quite uh, in the chord, you know, but they kind of hint at where they're going and build up the tension before going up to some higher, busier phrases and wrapping things up with a nice melodic phrase. And then uh, Joey DeFrancesco keeps the bass going for Nash to do some drum work. And Freeman adds punchy chords. They take it around the melody once more with some tasty fills from Freeman and cool double stop phrases, ringing intervals for an outro. We're going to get some Freeman originals, uh, track two, Mr. D, which is a relaxed shuffling 12-bar blues. Freeman and Joey DeFrancisco work the melody riffs together. Freeman solos first, tasty licks and trills, a little call-to-post bugle quote in there, mm-hmm. and he gets some low-range digging in his solo. Then Joey D solos, and he uh, returns the quote favor early on in his solo. Uh, works up some great tension with trills and speedy repeated licks into huge chord hits. Freeman returns for some more improvisation, including some repeated notes and bends with more trills into another couple rounds of the riffy melody. And the last track with uh, Joey DeFrancisco and uh, Nash, Up and Down, another Freeman original. Nash gets it going with an eight-measure drum intro into a jumpy 12-bar blues tune. They go around twice, and Nash then gets a couple rounds of drum soloing. Joey DeFrancisco's next, really pumping the bass pedals with endless bluesy melody ideas on top of a great rising chromatic line into more phrases. He just never ran out of ideas, uh, such an amazing player. Freeman has great scratchy rhythms going underneath, and then Freeman's solo is fun with punchy articulation on repeated ideas, some interesting (laughs) articulation and tone as well. And Joey D locks into uh, his changing riff ideas. He sticks to a repeated chord idea, then he raises it up chromatically, and they ended up with a new riff idea instead of going back to the original melody. They're just having fun after all here, and they leave the uh, tune with some whooping and laughing at the end of the track, all having good fun. Now we're going to switch over to the second session, actually recorded earlier, uh, with a Freeman original, Low Groovin'. Now, this is kind of interesting. Freeman had written this tune, and I guess it was originally named The Hulk, before it was changed by the record label as a kind of payola honor to uh, DC disc jockey Jackson Lowe in 1947. So from one of his earliest recording sessions. This is another 12-bar blues with a cool low melody and falling chords from Freeman over McBride's digging bass lines. Freeman's solo here is really tasty with some meandering phrases, harmonic tensions, and then McBride gets a ringing melodic solo with cool double-stop ideas. Freeman returns for some improvisations again with some chord work, like the beginning, to a little break, 
And final phrase uh, to finish it up. Track five is another Freeman original. One, two, three, four. It's basically a one chord bouncing bluesy tune that McBride adds a snappy bass line to. Allen's on drums here uh, with light snare accents as Freeman doodles away with fun ideas. McBride takes a rhythmic solo for himself as well. And then Freeman gets a little more fun before they end it. Track six, Freeman's original as well, Sister Tankersley. McBride starts it out with a solo loping bass line and Freeman joins with scratching uh, into dark chords. Uh, and this eventually mm. kind of forms into a loose 12 bar blues. Freeman has some sparse, tasty solo licks and more interesting chord ideas. McBride gets another melodic bluesy solo over ringing chords from Freeman who works some more ideas into a final dark chord ending chorus. And track seven end up with the title track, The Good Life. A song by Sasha Distel, originally French lyrics from 1962, but was featured in the movie The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, uh, Tony Bennett recorded it, made a hit from it in 1963. Uh, his version's real famous. Anyway, appropriate tune for uh, Mr. Freeman. It's a good life to be playing guitar still at 96. Indeed. One, one wonders if we'll still be doing this podcast in 96. <laughs> I kind of hope we'll so, really, because when you're that age, I mean, what else are you going to mm. do? You know, May as well be serving the public. Nice treatment here. Freeman creates some anticipation with the first melody note and a really long pause before he continues on. His phrasing and fills are subtle, tasty, and filled with feeling. Uh, they make a surprise change-up to a fast 6-8 feel. And Freeman continues on with chords, doodling phrases, and some rising tense chords to a return of the last section of the slow 4-4 melody, and then surprises with a line of slowly rising soft rhythmic strums that just keep going till they get to a final resolution over McBride's bass note. Jazz history in the flesh here, and he can still play the guitar. There's not much more to say, really. I hope he keeps playing until he's at least 100 years old. Uh, McBride, Lewis, and Nash follow the lead, and they back Freeman admirably. They're all tuned into uh, what he's doing. Uh, this might be also our last chance to hear something new recorded by Joey DeFrancisco before his untimely passing last year. And nobody knows how much time they have. Some go out too early, like Joey DeFrancisco, and some people have a long life, like George Freeman. But music makes everyone's life good and mm. uh, we're happy to have uh, this recording as well well yeah i think somebody once said to me that uh some people live long uh, but they don't live much and i think we can say that, that george yeah. freeman and joey francesco both lived much and george yeah. freeman has the uh benefit of also living long um right. and not only that but that the length of his life just kind of shows in his tone he's got this really sort of authentic deep kind of yeah yeah feeling to just you know he in a way like if you if you listen to carlos santana people talk about his like sustain and how like you know kind of special it is you got to get that out of uh, freeman's tone a lot too it's some there's something really just deep in the blues or in the yeah. in, in the past in it so um when he plays he he tends to play pretty quietly and sort of shorter phrases but you're just getting a lot out of it it's mm. it's not really what he plays but how he plays it i think that really makes this uh yeah i agree his, his playing really jump off of this record it's a bluesy record uh full of soul mm. and deep feeling and it draws you in from the beginning no surprise there considering who's playing and not just freeman yeah 
He's been playing for nearly a century, as you said. His tone and overall approach convey a depth of feeling and experience that we rarely hear anymore. And I want to, I stand by that because um, I think, you know, like I said, with the, with this many years, uh, something just really deepens in your tone mm. if you're playing like sort of authentic music all that time. He's capable of packing a lot into a single note via tone, sustain, and attack. Attack too. Yeah, just the way he'll yeah. bury his attack on notes usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joey D's playing has deeply satisfying soulful swells that we hadn't even been hearing from him on his solo album. So I was really happy to hear it here. And they just make him missed even more. Uh, Christian McBride on bass has enormous presence and plays beautifully throughout. So I had my ears on him and those last tracks. Mm -hmm. This is an album with depth, with a lot packed into the briefest phrases. An amazing example of how minimal playing can convey maximum content. Something that young musicians should absolutely hear i would say yeah. um and an album i'm going to revisit definitely yeah you know it's like uh, sometimes he plays a phrase yeah and then you kind of hear you know if you think you know and especially in blues playing there's going to be a lot of kind of call and response right but he won't play the response you'll hear <laughs> it in your head but he knows well, you're hearing you it yeah so he's already thinking of what's going to come next he's anticipating with that whole wealth of experience that he has and uh, some really unique tones uh, sometimes really dark ideas that you don't know well what's he going to do with this and then yeah he turns the corner and uh, he surprises you you yeah. know with something you hadn't imagined yet so yeah i really hope everybody goes for this and listens to it i don't know how much coverage it's going to get in jazz um sort yeah. of uh, periodicals or articles but people should really hear this Amazing to think, you know, you, you get to that age and then still have something to say and go and make a recording. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's just fabulous. Well, you have a tradition yeah. behind you, and that's always right. great. I don't know uh, how many of us are going to have that. You know? Well, like you say, you know, we were talking about, uh, I forgot who we were talking about, another, yeah. you know, kind of senior person in the music world. And one of the things that keeps you living is, you know, that you have something to give back. Right, exactly. You know, that people still need you for something. And mm. so... I think that's a great motivation to keep going on to a new day. Yeah, I think we definitely hear that here. Yeah, retirement would be great because I have loads of books I want to read and music I want to listen to. But yeah, it is nice to be doing something, especially that you enjoy. You know? Yeah, yeah, and to be needed by people. You know, right. you could just tell that Joey DeFrancisco was really on fire to be playing with him here, and you could right, just exactly. sense the energy in those tracks. So yeah, you get those young players that want to play with you because you have all that. Um, that background, that history, and that right. you know knowledge, you know, yeah. it's, it's a real thrill. I've heard stories about this sort of thing between musicians, between actors. It's nice because you can pass things on. I I told you, you know, when I was young, I I learned a lot about music from uh, the janitor at my high school. Right, you had he, said that yeah. he was a good uh, musician as well, and he passed on to me all sorts of albums and things. But I used to just go listen to him because uh, he grew up in New York in the 40s and he had seen everyone from charlie parker miles davis john right. coltrane and he would you just tell me about all the times that right. he was there and I, I was hearing this you know history from someone who was there right and exactly. uh, i was mesmerized you know to uh, mm. just someone who grew up at that time of course <laughs> now thinking back to when i was young that was as long ago as when right. you know, he was young but when you're young the that time seems like a a much greater span a bigger divide so yeah we need to think about time differently i do this a lot in um 
in classes when I talk about history, mm. uh, we tend to think of the past as all at the same time, sort of. It all just happened a long time ago. Right. But the past has its own time. You know, like yeah. if you go back, um, Robert Greenberg once made the comparison, like he said, you think about um, the, the pyramids in Egypt, and then you think about ancient Rome, and they just all seem like a long time ago. But the, the pyramids were built 2,000 years, maybe more, before, say, Julius Caesar was born. Right. So he would look at the pyramids in his time the same way we would look at him. Right. And the pyramids. You know, you just see the past as flat, you know, it's kinda but it has depth. Yeah. You notice too, like as you mm. age, you know, your memory gets compressed right, in your yeah. mind. So you can still get these little snapshots in your mind. So I have yeah. this snapshot in my mind. It's just like yesterday. Right. It's nineteen eighty two. Right. I'm sitting in the living room in my parents' house and you know, my mother had a vinyl collection and I pulled out because she was a Beatles fan. Oh, wow. And I looked and there was uh, Meet the Beatles. Right? Yeah, I remember that record. I, I had think it's 1963. Too. And yeah. I remember looking at it and holding it and thinking, wow, this is so <laughs> old. <laughs> so it was 63 to 82. And now I remember that like, you know, yesterday and that's what, 41 yeah. years ago now? I remember, yeah, because the Beatles sing on Sgt. Pepper's, the, the opening line is, it was 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper's right. at the Bland to play. And um, in 1987, the record had its 20th anniversary. And so, of course, all the newspapers were saying, oh, it's 20 years ago away today. And I was in college at the time. And I remember thinking, wow, that was a long time ago. And right. now it's what, like 50 years yeah. ago? <laughs> it's like more than double that time. And it just, yeah. I still remember the 20 years, the 20 year anniversary, like it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's really well, we got to keep it all in perspective. Yeah. Right. Don't let it pass by too quickly. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. Episode 100. And 22, Guitarosaurus. And uh, next week, we're going to go back to the piano. Are we going to call this Guitarosaurus? We're going for, we said it all over we the episode, it. but I kind of feel like it should be like a Guitar Squeakus or something. I don't know. It's a, something. All right. Well, if you think smaller. of anything better, let me know. I will see if something comes up. I'll I don't know. Edit out all of the Guitarosaurus. Maybe we could name it after. Uh, no, you don't have to edit them out. Just leave them in. Little, you know, maybe Eddie Van Halen's Little Guitars, you know, song, <laughs> Little Guitars or something like that. Intimate guitars. I don't know. Guitar lingerie. What do you think? <laughs> no. <laughs> you no. pass on that one? Okay. You pass on that one. <laughs> All right, guitarosaurus it is then. Okay, as usual, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Catches your eye and makes you want to hear what's inside the podcast. And as I mentioned, be sure to check out same difference to jazz fans one jazz standard you'll find a link in the description to that podcast and you'll also hear the little promo at the end of this episode next week episode 123 is going to be all piano focused music mm -hmm. and uh, we've got that all set up already and we're going to talk about we're highly anticipating we've actually heard oh, yeah. already though the keith jarrett album yeah. of cpe bach recordings yeah we'll go through that interesting and i've got some Piano jazz from uh, various places, uh, both sides of the Atlantic. If you want to uh, know what all those recordings are, after this episode gets released, we'll have that playlist up on Deezer, and there'll also be a link to it from our Facebook page. So come over and check that out if you want to uh, start listening early. And otherwise, we'll uh, see you again after another week of listening. So until then, 
Stay tuned and keep listening. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.